Out of the Vat. Hello, welcome to Out of the Vat, a podcast where we talk to philosophers about their work and about their lives, both inside and outside of philosophy. Today we'll be speaking to Heather Widows. Heather is the John Ferguson Professor of Global Ethics at the University of Birmingham. Her current research looks at the increasing demands of beauty, which she explores in her latest book, Perfect Me, Beauty is an Ethical Ideal. Heather also co-runs the Beauty Demands blog, a research network addressing the changing requirements of beauty, and she founded the Everyday Lookism campaign. Hello Heather, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Uh, Can you firstly tell us a bit about what you're working on at the moment? For sure. So my most recent book is Perfect Me, Beauty is an Ethical Ideal, and um, I'm still completely obsessed with beauty practices. So at the moment I'm working on body positivity and why it might not be so positive. So first of all, you feel like a failure because you feel you don't measure up. And then you feel like a failure again because you haven't got the right attitude. You're not resilient enough. You're not positive enough. And this just seems to me the wholly wrong way to go about it. Okay. Um, So what is the right way to go about it? So we have just launched, funny you should ask me that, um, a big campaign called Everyday Lookism, which mirrors the Everyday Sexism campaign. Uh-huh. So instead of saying to people, oh, all bodies are great when we know, and young girls know that that's not true, we are sharing people's lookism stories. So people are uploading anonymously their stories of lookism. So things like negative comments about bodies or body parts, things that stuck with them, to show how deep this cuts. So just like... 50 years ago, we didn't realise quite how terrible sexism was. It was kind of okay for you know, secretaries to have their bums pinched or whatever sexist behaviour was normalised. It's still normal to do lookism. So we routinely criticise other people's bodies, make nasty comments, all the way from the playground to the workplace, partners, lovers, parents, strangers. And these things cut deeply. So one of my arguments in Perfect Me is that in a visual and virtual culture, we really have moved to a place where our bodies are ourselves in a way that was just not true in previous generations. And if I'm even slightly right about this, then those kind of luckiest comments, they cut deeply and we should stop them. Hence the Everyday Luckism campaign, which is getting a lot of take-up. Okay, great. And um, where can people find out more about this? Okay. Just Google Everyday Lookism and you'll find the site and you can upload your stories and I promise they absolutely are anonymous. There's no way that anybody can track them back, so have no fear about that. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so this, is, this builds upon the, your work in, in your, your recent book, Perfect Me. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the arguments in this book? Certainly. So I've got four main arguments in Perfect Me. The first is that... Um, In a visual, virtual, global culture, the beauty ideal is transforming into an ethical ideal um, and that we've never had anything like that before. So it really is the case when people say things like, oh, I was good today, I stuck to my diet, that they do mean that they were morally good and that this is transforming how we think about our bodies and ourselves and it's becoming a moral demand, something that we have to do and something that we feel ashamed of ourselves, quite literally ashamed of ourselves when we fail at. And we haven't at all understood what this means, and that's the philosophical argument. And then we haven't recognised the damage that that can do, and then that's the more practical policy-applied argument. So that's the first argument. It's ethical. The second is that it's global, and that makes a difference. So if you compare, say, demanding beauty practices like corset-wearing or foot-binding to current practices like complete body hair removal. You might think body hair removal is not that bad compared to foot binding. On the other hand, um, because it's global, we're now in in a moment where body hair removal looks natural. So foot binding, that Victorian... uh, Sorry, not Victorian. Sorry, the Victorian woman who wears a corset, 
She knew that that corset wasn't natural. Her maids didn't wear one. It was obviously artifice. The Chinese woman with the bound foot, she knew that that was not natural or normal. She knew it was about beauty. Again, it was artifice. She saw that her, her maids didn't have their feet bound. Women in the fields didn't have their feet bound. Women in other cultures didn't have their feet bound. So the difference that a global ideal makes is that it normalises and naturalises. So we're now in a moment where we think it's the hairless body that is the normal or natural body, and that's different from all previous beauty ideals. Third argument is about the nature of the self. So in a very real sense, our bodies have become ourselves, and beauty objectification, I think, is different from sexual objectification. So we locate ourselves in our bodies, but not just the mere body of sexual objectification. Our body is our actual body, one that we're often dissatisfied with, but it is also a transforming body that we're working on full of potential and possibility. And then there's our imagined body, the one we'll have at the end of the process, which is our ideal body, our perfect me. And the final argument is about why all the other arguments don't work anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, so this this all sounds this all sounds like quite negative and a little bit scary. Um, what's what's the positive way forward? Do you think? Okay, so for sure it's scary, um, but this is only one possible future. So we are moving, if trends continue, to a world where the very heavily modified body becomes natural or normal. But that's only one possible future. There are very many possible futures. And in Perfect Me, while I track the increasing demands, and that is harmful, I also track the significant positive features of the beauty ideal. So philosophy has been particularly guilty of worrying about the mind and ignoring the body. That's far worse than over-worrying about the body. So I spend time emphasising that the, the positive features, the social bonding features, the caring features, the nurturing features of the beauty ideal. It is a mixed ideal. Uh, it is empowering and it is demanding and it's critical and it's encouraging. So you have to understand the whole of the piece. And going forward, there are very, very many positive things that we can do. So one is things like everyday lookism. Why are we using social media only to emphasise the bad as opposed to using it to emphasise the good? There's lots that we can all do to engage in that space. There's also all kinds of things that we can do about the, the adverts we use, the expectations we have. And the first thing we can do is to recognise why it has such power. It's not enough to tell our girls just to resist. That's too much. Um, and then going forward, we need to find, as my last chapter of perfect me suggests we need to find beauty without the beast right the last thing we want is to forget that we're bodies again we need to inhabit love and engage with and between our bodies as part of ourselves without continuing the critical harmful elements okay so i understand most of your work uh, up until recently was on global justice um so why, why the change to working on beauty that's a really interesting question and, and quite a number of people in, who work in global ethics have said to me, how can you go from all these serious issues about poverty and gender justice and now be working on beauty? And, you know, I just say, have a look at how important beauty is. Beauty is utterly full of justice issues. Uh, it matters to so many people so much that it is almost defining of identity. So I think there's no real transition in my work. It seems to me that beauty is one of the justice issues. We literally have an epidemic of body image anxiety that is now affecting um, boys as well as girls across demographics, irrespective of age range. As young as three, we start worrying about this. And it changes what human beings can be and do in really profound ways. So my view is this is still a justice issue. It's one of the most important issues to address in the current visual and virtual culture.
and we should be doing more work on it, not thinking it's trivial. What is the most controversial philosophical position you've ever held? So that's a really difficult one. So um, uh, only just having looked at the questions, I'm sure I'll come up with a better answer tomorrow. But I <laughs> guess um, one of the things that I guess I've argued for in almost every debate that I've entered from genetics to um, women's rights to the beauty debate is how much, especially in applied ethics and policy, we overemphasize choice and consent, that we let choice do the, the work that we should be doing with better ethical practices, that, we sh that choice is not. So as I said um, in my inaugural lecture, which is quite a number of years ago now, um, choice is not fairy dust. And at the time, my daughter, who's now 11, I think was two, so that was the only reason I said that was so I could have a flashing picture of Tinkerbell <laughs> on, the, on the screen, who she was particularly into at that point. So I, I think that nearly every time when we default to choice and consent as the ethical maker, we are failing to do the ethics that we should, that far too often that allows us to avoid addressing the structural injustices and the wider critiques of context. So my first book was about Iris Murdoch, and I think I would still endorse Iris's view that far more in ethics is about habits and about practices and much is not about choice. That often by the point at which you get to where you feel you're making a choice, that has already been conditioned by the context, the wider structural injustices, and the habits and practices that have led you there. And if we want to do ethics properly, we need to stop looking at choice. Which position have you changed your mind about? I, um, I've changed my mind about very, very many positions. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, I think one should, right? If you learn yeah, more sure. stuff, you should, you should be willing to change your mind, to move back and forwards. Um, uh, so uh, in, my, in my recent work, when I started writing Perfect Me, I really thought that, that I would be able to use some of the old arguments, like that beauty is about gendered exploitation or adaptive preference, and I'd be able to make these work. Uh, you know, refresh them, revive them, uh, but they don't, they just don't work. So that was really frustrating. And I remember at one point um, you know, saying to, you know, uh, saying to um, Anne Phillips, was just like, oh my goodness, none of them work. And she went, well, just write that. So um, I did just write that <laughs> in the end. So I changed my mind about the, those arguments. Um, I, I guess I've changed my mind, um, but particularly about um, where we should be focusing uh, in changing what we do about beauty. So when I started writing this, I, I think I had a bit of a kind of um, split personality. So on the one hand, I really wanted to revive those um, arguments about gender exploitation. At the other hand, you know, as, as somebody from a particular background, I have always recognised that, you know, beauty is not all this terrible, horrible stuff and that you should just resist it. And, you know, um, and I've, I've kind of managed to come to terms with that through writing this book, and I now recognise just how context-dependent, of course, one's beauty norms are too, and that claims just to resist uh, tend to fall much harder on those lower down the race and the class hierarchies, and they're over-individual, and that's not what we should be doing at all. So I've changed my mind about all of that stuff. And what is the most recent work of fiction you've read? Okay, so if I'm brutally honest, the most recent work of fiction I've read is rereading Twilight series to see if there was, um, you know, if it was, if my 11-year-old daughter could read it or if there was too much sex in it. Okay. Um, that, would, that would be my, my most recent work of fiction. And what was the verdict? 
Uh, I let her read it. Right. <laughs> and, I, and I let her watch the films. But I did explain to her that, you know, even though she's 11, that really the whole of vampire fiction is all about whether or not one can have sex. So, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so that, that's my most recent work of fiction. OK. Um, <laughs> OK. Um, I guess I'm before that. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so before Twilight, I think I probably read some other 11-year-old fiction. So I've been reading things like Ink that I've been told is my daughter's favourite. I have to read it. And then next week, there's a different favourite. So I've now, I've now limited her to only one book every month must I have to read so that she can read it. Uh, I recently reread Vanity Fair because she wanted to read that, so that was actually quite good fun. Mm-hmm. And I guess the most recent bit of fiction that I've read that was just for me, not for my daughter, was The Shock of the Fall, which I very much enjoyed. Okay, can you tell us a bit about it? I guess it, it's about um, the interior of a particular individual's mind coming to terms with some of his past and how different it is on the inside than on the outside. What is your favourite TV show? Oh, this is another difficult question. I don't know if I have a favourite TV show at the moment. I'm binge-watching Killing Eve, but I don't know if I like it or if I hate it for all <laughs> kinds of uh, feminist reasons. Um, Programmes that, that I've absolutely loved, um, so Borgen, absolutely love. Definitely recommend everybody watches that. Uh, I'm also a bit of a sucker for um, certain types of historical drama. So, you know, I love Anne Boleyn, so I would watch and re-watch The Tudors. Um, I quite like even programmes like Rome, and recently I re-watched the whole of I, Claudius, and the sets do shake. Right, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What did you want to be when you grew up? It's really hard to remember. So um, I've wanted to be all kinds of things. I wanted to be a dancer. Um, I wanted to do contemporary dance. And even did summer school at one point with Phoenix. And then, then yeah, I, think my, I think my dad said, go do your A-levels instead of that silliness. Um, yeah, at times I wanted to be an NGO worker. At times I've, I've thought, oh, I'll just give it all up and be a florist. Um, so, okay. um, kind of, yeah, all kinds of things. Okay. Um, and what led you to the philosophy in the end? I think I fell into it by accident, like, like I think happens to very many people. Mm-hmm. You know, I turned out to be quite good at it, and, and then so I fell into a PhD, and then I applied for any job that I could get, and I got a job that happened to be in applied ethics, even though my PhD wasn't applied at all. And then, and then you know, then I got captivated by um, how much stuff is wrong with the world, and, mm. and how you want to make a better world, and ethics is one way to try and do that. Okay. Um, so was your first degree in philosophy? Yeah, so my first degree is in, was at Edinburgh, my undergraduate is in theology, and then my PhD was moral philosophy. What do you like about being a philosopher? I like everything about being a philosopher. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I still can't believe that I get paid to think and write and communicate ideas. I mean, I think academics in general are incredibly privileged. And if I look at some of the jobs that my friends are doing, I, I, I just cannot believe that, that I get paid to do this stuff, right? So um, I'm not saying there's nothing terrible about my job. Though it's, sometimes it can be hard. Sometimes you're overworked. Uh, but in comparison to almost any job, um, it's a truly amazing job, and I still feel incredibly privileged to be a philosopher. 
and the, what don't you like being, about being a philosopher? There's very little I don't like about my job. I guess I still I don't like the competitiveness that goes with some mm -hmm. of this. I think we're getting better, but I still think that we are uh, too competitive. We confuse good arguments with being argumentative, and there's a there's a there's an edginess and a nastiness that I. I feel is, is growing less, but that is still there in some philosophy contexts. And I would like us to move to much more collaborative ways of doing philosophy where we are collectively searching for better ways to understand and explain the world rather than trying to destroy how somebody else has done it. Okay, Heather, thank you very much. My absolute pleasure, thank Cheers. you. You've been listening to Out of the Vat, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method, the Forum for Philosophy, and the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science, all based at the London School of Economics and Political Science.